I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time. We knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. Kevin Blackestone might be the only sports writer I know who has written about Byron Nelson and Nelson Mandela. Kevin switched from being a news reporter to covering sports in 1990, and his columns in the Washington Post and before that the Dallas Morning News have always made me think. Read Kevin and you pause and ponder. He's also been entertaining sports fans while informing them as a longtime participant on the ESPN show Around the Horn. We're lucky to have him as a guest. Kevin, thanks for joining us on the show. It's a real honor, and it's great to catch up with you again. Well, thanks for the invite, Todd. Appreciate it. We cross paths a lot in um, you know major sporting events, but there was a day at the Athens Olympics in 2004 mm-hmm. when you and I went to lunch. <laughs> That's right. And we were eating Greek food, and I think both of our heads were going to explode out of delight. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The uh, the uh, Athens Games, um, that little Greek diner just down the street from that uh, dormitory that we were staying in. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, our, our eyes were like cartoon bug-eyed. You know, we were <laughs> like, oh, my God, this food. Lord, I've died and gone to heaven. <laughs> yeah, that was a good so, time. So, so no slight, but, you know, when I think of you, not only do I think of great journalism, I think of great tomatoes. <laughs> so you've done this for 40 years and just covered everything and written so many great pieces. Um, when somebody says something to you like, hey, what, what have you done the last 40 years? How do you sum up a career like that? Well, I've done sports the last, I've done sports since 1990. Um, prior right. to doing sports, I covered, uh, economics for about four or five years. Uh, and before that I did, um, uh, news, um, most of which was investigative journalism, actually data journalism into social justice affairs, which right. we didn't call social justice journalism at the time. And we didn't call data journalism at the time. Um, we just called it reporting. So for the yeah the last thirty years doing sports has been um, you know, it's been a lot of fun. It's uh, taken me around the country. It's also taken me around the world. Um, covered the Olympics in Athens. Covered the Olympics in Sydney. Covered the Olympics in Barcelona. Covered the Olympics in Vancouver. It's been great and uh, seen a lot of. A lot of incredible stories unfold before your eyes. Um, talk to a lot of really interesting people. So it's been, you know, it's been a blast. And also um, seeing the transformation of the sports media industry, not only in the way that it does business, but also in the types of stories that it is, it is interested in. And ESPN has an entire site, The Undefeated, dedicated towards covering um, race and, and culture and social justice issues within sports. So, Well, I think you're a real pioneer in this. I mean, you, you, know, you broke down walls in the world of uh, sports journalism. You know, you and Bill Roden and Michael Wilbon and, and uh, Terrence Moore in Atlanta. 
You know, some of these mm-hmm. guys that really paved the way for that. And I think that's why I have so much respect for your career. The thing that makes me really laugh about sports sometimes is that we think of it as the toy department. And some of these really absurd things exist, but they exist in the culture. Um, but I wanted to ask you about some of the, th- the absurd things, too. <laughs> right. <laughs> and there was right. a night. But, you know, it's funny, but there was a so you're you're so smart and you heck you teach. You, you're a professor of journalism at the University of Maryland. I mean, yeah, you have a, a Vita, right? a <laughs> curriculum Vita. I don't even know. That's right. I don't even know most sports writers know what a Vita is. You I know, also have it's a, a cheese Vita. or, you know, hey bartender, give me give me two Vitas. <laughs> I was going to say I also have a Matt Vita who's the editor of the Post. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You bring this wisdom and this and this smarts, but then then there's a night like June 28, 1997, and you're sitting ringside at the MGM Grand for oh a heavyweight championship fight between Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield. Tell me about that. Un- oh man, that was yeah, that was a crazy night. Um, so everybody knows what happened, right? You have that's the that's the fight where. Um, Tyson bites off a piece of Evander Holyfield's ear. And that, it, it, it's, it sounds crazy even to repeat it. But, yeah, I remember, you know, there was, there was nothing <laughs> more exciting in sports that I ever covered than a Mike Tyson fight. I mean, it was just, really? it was just electric. It was just the, the energy and the, and the crowd and the anticipation. And Mike Tyson fights were were off the charts. And so, yeah, this was a huge fight. And nobody thought, most people did not think Evander Holyfield could beat Tyson. Um, If I'm not mistaken, we got there at the beginning of that week, and I think the odds were 22 to 1. And I remember uh, Ron Borges bought a ticket at 18 to 1. So at any (laughs) rate... From the Boston Globe. That's right, from the Boston Globe. Um, So he was very, uh, very happy at the end of this fight, but... Um, yeah, so we're sitting there and, you know, and the fight has started and they're going on. And then all of a sudden there's a stoppage. And we weren't really sure what the stoppage was for. And there was a little lull. And then you heard someone in the press area or, or right up on ringside say something like, he, he, he bit his ear off. And everybody was like, everybody looked at each other and were like, and it's very tight quarters. Um, when you're ringside, it's like, what, what did he say? There's no way that happened. And so they have a big screen in the MGM Grand Arena. And eventually they played some re- the replay. And we looked up and we're like, oh, no, he did bite his ear off. <laughs> <laughs> so, so then you, 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 you are well, certain. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What was your reaction? Did you see that? What, what was well, your reaction? Yeah, you looked up and you, and you, he didn't take the whole ear off, but you could see that he definitely gnawed into his ear and that he had taken out a little chunk of the ear. And, and Holyfield was grabbing his ear and there was blood and, and it, 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 was, it was surreal. But, but here's the thing. You just knew at that point that the fight was over. And Mills Lane, the mm. famous Mills Lane, um, was, was in the ring. And you just knew the fight was over. And the amazing thing was, it wasn't. <laughs> I said, let's see it. They, they, they got the corner. Hey, he's got another ear. That's you know? right. He's got two ears. You're exactly right. So they start the fight over. And not only does he have another ear, but Tyson goes after him again and bites the other side of his face. And at that point, 
all hell broke loose and they and they um they, they stopped the fight. Um so one thing you'll remember, which is nobody does anymore, but back in the day for a very late sporting event, um you write a a pre-piece to kind of hold the space in the paper so you can just plug in uh your story right on deadline. Yeah. And so I had a pre-column right, right. that was written and it was holding in the holding the space in Sunday's paper. So I'm I'm rewriting and I'm just writing crazy and you're right on deadline and it's just all sorts of commotion. And uh, uh, I get up and I go to the press room that's underneath the arena and go in there and finish up and I go to file and I can't get a connection. Mm. Try again no, and again. Like the worst. I, oh my God, I can't get a connection. I'm looking at my watch. It's coming right up on, you know, whatever the time was, midnight or whatever. So I'm like, this is crazy. I'm going to have to go to my hotel room. So I pack up and I run out of the, the press room. I go up the escalator and there is just a sea of humanity. And one thing about a Mike Tyson fight is mm. there are dudes at the Mike Tyson fight who you do not want to accidentally bump into, whose shoe you don't want to accidentally <laughs> step on. Um, and so I'm yeah. trying to maneuver through this crowd and it's just, I, I just can't explain. I mean, it's complete pandemonium. And I get up to my room, I plug my, my computer in, I hit sin, it goes through, I call my desk, I say, did you get it? They say, yeah, we got it, but it's too late. Oh, no. <laughs> so I go downstairs to get a drink. Well, oh yeah, I mean you know you hey. got to right. So I <laughs> right. go downstairs, and it's just a ton of people, and I go to a bar, and all of a sudden, you hear people screaming and you see people running. Go what now? What the hell's going on? <laughs> so they all of a sudden the gendarmes come through and they're and they're clearing out the they're clearing out the casino area. They're clearing out the, the Places where people are standing. If you don't have a if you don't have a um, a card for staying there, they're ushering you out the door. It was crazy, which you've never seen. Casinos never never send no, no, people. They don't out. want you to leave, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. right, right. No. So come to find out, um, days later, or maybe the next day, some there was a, there were several sounds within the casino that sounded like gunshots, and that sent people scurrying, and that sent the that sent the uh, security in. The wow. MGM claimed that's, that it wasn't shots, that some tables fell over. Yeah, Who that, knows? That's what it sounds like, when a table falls <laughs> yeah, over. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Um, all I know wow. is that Dave Anderson and Mike Wilbon, they dove under a table at a restaurant they were at. I think they were at, at, at P.F. Chang's or something like that. And uh, it, was just, it was just crazy. Um, yeah, life of a sports writer. Life right? of a sports writer. That's that's great. That's crazy. I, you know, I brought that night up because in sports writing, you have absurd moments happen, and again, you're you're bringing in you know a perspective from outside of sports, and yet you have to you know you have to like put that type of moment into context. 
And I think that's what you always brought to uh, sports journalism and still do. I mean, you know, you're on ESPN around the horn. You're writing for The Washington Post. Um, you know, you're still bringing this perspective. And yet you still have these nights that just are crazy. And they and like, what what in the hell is going on here? So with that in mind, and you didn't want to be a sports writer, what the hell happened? How did you become a sports writer? <laughs> that's crazy, too. Um I was uh, I was covering economics, um, as I mentioned, for the Dallas Morning News. Um, I had been at the paper about mm, about five years, um, five or six years, and I had a couple of offers to go cover economics elsewhere. Two of which were in my hometown of D.C. One was with the Washington Post, and one was with USA Today. And I was mulling them over, and. Uh, then the um, sports editor came to me and he said, and I had done a little bit of work for the, the sports department. And he said, we want to start a beat. We want to start a business of sports beat. And mm-hmm. would you be, you know, we'd like you to do it. We're offering you that job. And I thought about it a while. I was like, I, I just thought at the time it was too narrow. You know, I just right, didn't, right. You know, I wanted to do, do more than that. Well, just at that time, um, there was a columnist at the Dallas Morning News. He left to go to Arizona. So that opened up a columnist spot. So Dave right, Smith, right. the innovative uh, sports editor for the, um, for the Morning News, came up with an idea. He wasn't just going to hire one columnist to replace David Stevens. He was going to hire three, and he was going to do that by using diverse voices that really were very rare in, in sports journalism at the time and certainly in Dallas and in Texas. Yeah, it's 1990, right? 1990. Yeah. 89, 90, 91. Yeah. So he promoted, um, right. he promoted Kevin Sherrington to right. columnist, a, a young white writer. He, he promoted Kathy Harasta to a columnist, um, mm-hmm. one of the few her. women. Yeah. And then he recruited me. You know, I had to I had to think hard about it because now, I mean, I like sports. I knew it was not going to be easy going into a job that people covet and mm. doing something I've never ever done on a regular basis. Yeah, that said, but you, but journalism was always kind of part of your life, right? I mean, even growing up, sure. didn't you deliver the Washington Post as a kid? I delivered the Washington Post, the Washington Star, and the Washington Daily News, which only lasted about a year. Delivered them all. Wow. Yeah. How many times did you change the tires on your bike? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> a lot of arm throwing. Oh, I had a and I had a great system. I had a um, a grocery cart, um, and uh, I probably delivered about a hundred newspapers every morning. You never thought you're going to be ringside when a guy bites a guy's ear. Uh, no. <laughs> what I did think I might be is I might be at the hearing um, for reinstating the license of the guy who bit off the guy's ear, which is another crazy story. <laughs> Flying back out to Las Vegas for, well, let's hear for the Mike Tyson's hearing. Oh, it was, it was, yeah, let's hear it. No pun intended. But yeah, so, so, so after the Tyson thing, you know, he is stripped of his, um, or his license is suspended. So he has to go before the um, Athletic Commission in Las Vegas, the Nevada Athletic Commission, to plead for his license back. And, and so... It's a big news event. Go out there for that. And uh, so we're in this courtroom-like setting for most of the day. And 
Tyson's sitting there and his representatives are speaking on his behalf. He speaks. I remember his wife at the time was there. Um, <laughs> at the time. Yeah, at the time. <laughs> Richard's, Key words in that sentence. That's right. At any rate, they go through this whole thing, and then the hearing is over, and then Mike and his entourage, they go out a back door, and so we, we all scramble out the front door to try and, because we're trying to get to Mike. We want to get a quote, a quote from mm-hmm. Mike. Right. And we find him coming out the back um, and underneath this building, and there was a Ducati motorcycle parked right there. And Mike comes out, and he's got a helmet on, and he gets on the <laughs> and he gets on the Ducati, and he cranks it, rev it up, and we're yelling questions at Mike. The bike stalls; it won't start. <laughs> and then Mike gets off the gets off the bike, and as soon as he does, like a some car pulls up, you know some dark colored car with tinted windows the door opens up mike gets off his bike he takes his helmet in frustration and he slams it to the ground (laughs) and it hit the ground and it bounces up and i don't know that that has come back into orbit since (laughs) and mike gets in the car slams the door and the car speeds off and that that was that was it (laughs) so that was that was part two of that crazy that crazy story well, you think about this. I mean, you spent a decade, you know, covering news, investigations, economics. You're with the Chicago Reporter magazine. You're doing all this news stuff for the uh, Dallas Morning News. And literally at the time that you decided to make the switch to sports, you had just covered the Nelson Man- Mandela U.S. tour, right? Like he had just been yeah, released from yeah, prison hey. and it was in the U.S. And you're covering this. Oh, that was that was another yeah that was another one and you can appreciate this because it was almost like covering you know a basketball team on the road when they're doing back-to-backs because he was in um he was over here for about a week and every day he was in another city so I split the coverage with uh one of my best friends Kevin Merida who is now um the head of the undefeated um he covered the first leg, I think, and I covered the second leg. So I was in Detroit, Oakland, Atlanta. You know, you, you're, you're so worn out because you, you fly into a city, you throw your bags down in whatever hotel is closest to the airport, you go cover him wherever he's at, you write your story, then you go back to your hotel and grab something to eat, and get on a plane first thing in the morning and go to another city. And it was just, it was, I mean, Detroit, Oakland, I mean, it was crazy. And, um, but it was a lot of fun. It was an incredible thing to see. And, you know, the challenge was, how can I write something that no one else is writing about the same thing? Because you're just seeing him giving these speeches. Right. And seeing him. Yeah, did you ever have much interaction with Mandela? No, no, you couldn't get, you couldn't get close to him. But yeah, um, right. I came up with a, a few a few ideas along the way. My best idea was um, uh, I was with him. I was with him when he got to Atlanta, and so he was speaking at um, Bobby Dodd Stadium, Georgia Tech's football stadium. So I was like, "Well, if I go over there, yeah. you know, I'm just going to hear the speech." So I remembered that um, H. Rap Brown, 
who at the time had turned his name and he'd, he'd become Muslim, um, lived in Atlanta. He had a mm-hmm. grocery store in Atlanta. I knew that. Um, and Atrap Brown was, you know, he was one of the great, he was one of the infamous black power leaders of the 60s, early 70s. Um, I think he was the one that came up with the phrase, you know, what is it, violence is a, as American as cherry pie, something like that. Mm. So at any rate, um, I knew somebody who knew him. So I called my friend. I said, hey, I'm going to be in Atlanta for Nelson Mandela. Um, do you think Atrap Brown would talk to me about what, you know, what he sees in this moment? Coming to Atlanta, the home of Dr. Martin Luther King, right. all that. So he said, yeah, let me call him and see. I'll put in a word for you. So he does. And Atrap Brown gets back. He says, yeah, come on by. Come on by my grocery store. So I go to this grocery store in this little, this little black neighborhood, and um, we go in the back in, in his little teeny office on this little teeny television, and we watch the whole thing. And I talk to him about um, what he thinks about Nelson Mandela, what he thinks about Martin Luther King, what he thinks about this moment, um, since Nelson Mandela had been such a powerful figure you know, for the 27 years that he was in prison in yeah. Robben Island. And so that was cool. So that, you know, that worked out. So you're always challenging yourself to find that story or find an angle into a story that, you know, that, that, that other folks might not have. Well, what you just articulated, I think, is what you brought to sports when you made that switch. So you're, you go from covering, you know, Nelson Mandela, the great – anti-apartheid politician in, in yeah. uh, South Africa. He overturned a system and became the country's president. Yeah, how about that? You cover that, and next thing you know, you're interviewing some <laughs> offensive lineman about a failed trap play that cost him the game. Uh, how did uh, Just the, the idea that you had to juggle that type right. of thing. But I think what it gets to is that you always found the cultural context of what sports, where sports exist. Is that, do you think that's what news and, and everything brought to you? Yeah, I mean, I think, that? yeah, and I think that's news, you know, um, there's a couple parts to news, or maybe more than a couple parts. You know, one of the, one of the parts is when you're energized to cover a story, it doesn't matter what it is, and you want to, you want to do it the, the, as best you can, but you also want to find a way to try and separate that story from all the other stories that are being written on the same thing, right? You want to find a new angle into it, a new way of, right. a new perspective. Well, it's about being open-minded to what's going yeah. on, you know, looking around and seeing, trying to put it into context. In terms of advocacy, you know, obviously one of the things that I think about when I started in the late 80s as a sports writer, it was pretty evident to me that there weren't many black sports writers. You know, I would go to events and go to games and there just weren't, there just weren't many of them. And so you being an African-American man, came into this business and you brought it a much, much needed perspective um, and understanding about, you know, the vast majority of athletes that we were dealing with were black. And um, how did you approach it when you made the move from news to sports uh, approach that? Well, that was always, um, thanks for saying that. Uh, I mean, that's always been foundational to me in journalism. I mean, the reason I got into journalism was um, to... Uh, to advocate um, uh, about the treatment of people of color, um, people of lesser means in society, 
I mean, that's, that's why I got in. And so if I strayed from that, then I would feel that I wasn't being true to myself. Um, and I wasn't, um, I wasn't making an impact in the business. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, our business is critical. I mean, the, we're the first amendment in the constitution. Our business is critical. Right. Um, and so I've always tried to apply that ideal to whatever I'm covering. Um, look for those stories in news. Um, look for those, look for those angles within c- covering economics. Um, you know, I would always, I always made a, a point to, uh, to highlight gains or losses by people of color and women when the, when the uh, employment report would come out, um, uh, when housing start mm-hmm. reports would come out, those kind of routine stories. And I'll kind of remind people of where everybody is in this picture. So you get to sports and it's, a, it's the same thing. Well, and those are, those are the type of stories that just weren't being done. They just weren't being done. Like when I started in the business, not many, you know, no. I, I'll give you an example of this, Kevin. I, I started uh, late eighties, I think it was like 1990. I was in, at the Cincinnati Post, and they had me become the college basketball writer. And it's a big sport in Cincinnati. You got University of Cincinnati, Xavier, Kentucky fans. It's big. And I love basketball. And I remember I took that beat, the Xavier University beat, and I was on a road trip early in the season. And uh, one of the players named Michael Davenport, um, African-American guard, just a great guy, he and I bumped into each other uh, on the road in the afternoon of the game, and we ended up having lunch, and we ended up talking for like two hours. Wow. And I was thinking to myself, looking back, I didn't really think about it so much at the moment, but I looked back and I said, that's, that's the longest conversation I've ever had with a black person. Wow. You know, I grew, yeah. I grew up, you know, all white grade school, all white uh, high school, and here I am, you know, very limited experience with dealing with you know, meeting and talking with African-Americans. Now I'm writing about college basketball. And that conversation that I had with Michael, it really, for the first time, I think, made me think about putting myself in other shoes, you know? I think about a moment like that, and I think about um, how to, how I then looked at stories uh, because of that one conversation. And it's all about experience, all about open-mindedness, right? Yeah, it is. Wow, and I never knew that, knew that about you. See, I just figured you was one of the cool dudes. You know, I didn't realize that you went through any, and I wouldn't say that that was any epiphany for you, but that you were willing to sit down and, um, and and talk it out. Um, I mean, that's incredibly important. You know, I remember when, um, with the Texas Rangers, when they had, um, uh, Ruben Sierra, um, um, Pudge Rodriguez at the same time, there was another, there was another Latin player. Well, Ruben Sierra became, I, I thought through the reporting, he, he got a bad rap. And it really wasn't his fault as much as it was those of us in the media who would not take the time to listen to his Spanish. You know, his, his English was not mm. very good. And so, um, and so I think he got, kind of got painted in a, in a, in a way that it wasn't, wasn't fair to him. Um, but you know, the, the thing about sports is when it comes to people of color is 
Sports is the way that most of the rest of the world, certainly in this country, sees people of color. I mean, to your point, Mm -hmm. if you come up in an all-white neighborhood, go to all-white schools, you know, your, your idea, your vision of people of color are the athletes, if you like sports, are the athletes you grow up watching on TV. Or you see yeah, in person. I've never crossed paths. Exactly. Yeah, Ex- there's somebody else. I, I saw them on television. Exactly. And so you never right. realize that there are uh, there are other, you know, there's a there are greater contours to these people than just these athletes and who they and and how they may behave and reflect on on television or or at a game that you went to. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that's you know, I think that's that's important. And, um, well, I think it's just, it's, it's about communication and mm -hmm. it's in retrospect, 30 years later, I look back and I think of myself as a young guy and it was a moment that made me just start thinking, you know, thinking about where, whoever it is that I'm writing about is coming from. And those are the type of conversations in the, in the moments behind the scenes that, you know, sports writers, you know, for well, we're blessed to have those type of experiences, I think. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's all about, you. I mean, it's just so many great people you run into. Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix dissecting the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll catch you after the chequered flag. So you're at the Dallas Morning News in the 90s. Yeah. And there's no bigger sports story at the time than the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, they're rolling. They're rolling the Super Bowl championships, 93, 94, 96. Yep. You got Jimmy and Jerry. You got all those guys. Um, so so what was it like for you to be around the Cowboys? Uh, you know, Michael Irvin, Troy Aikman, Emmett Smith, on and on. What was it like being around that team, um, you know, trying to find something different? Sure. And just try to, you know, make an understanding of what, what this is all about here. Well, having been born and reared in Washington, D.C., in a family that had season tickets uh, to see the Washington football team play before I was even born, and for whom religion was going to games on Sunday, and whose greatest memory in sports, most thrilling moment in, in boyhood, was watching the Washington beat Dallas 26-3 to in the NFC title <laughs> game to go to the Super Bowl in 72. Hail to the Redskins. That's right, that's right. So I hated the Cowboys. I, I hated mm. the Cowboys. So now I've got to cover them. <laughs> And try and be objective about it. Um, uh, and, and in fact, uh, Jim Jeffcoat, who was, one, who was a lineman on those teams um, and is originally from Jersey, uh, anytime Washington Week came up for Dallas, I would always joke with him. As I would leave the locker room, I would, say, I would tell him, you know Washington going to kick your ass this weekend. And he'd just <laughs> laugh. We'd, we'd have a good time about it. But, I mean, it was amazing to watch – you know, J- Jimmy Johnson came in in 1989, 
Jerry Jones and Jimmy came in in 1989. They had that horrific year, 1-15. in 15. Mm-hmm. The only game they won in Troy Eggman's rookie year was over Washington. So they get, yeah, they get rolling. You just, and the amazing thing really was to watch them piece together the talent. So do you have a favorite Jerry Jimmy story involved that you, that you witnessed or were part um, of? I'll tell you one I was part of. The, the Cowboys had this rookie running back one year uh, coming out of training camp who was pretty good. And I, I can't remember his name. Um, but they were loaded at running back, and they didn't want to, they didn't want to cut this guy loose. And so in the, after the last preseason game, all of a sudden he, he showed up on the injured reserve list, which meant that they could keep him around. And so I saw him in the locker room, and I, I said to him, I said, when did, you get, when did you get hurt? And he said to me, when they told me. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, right. <laughs> so I wrote this right. So I wrote this column, basically saying um, that the the Cowboys were learning the game, the system, just like you know, just like Washington, which was famous for doing the same thing, and some other teams were famous for doing the same thing. It was kind of a tongue in cheek column. Yeah, the injury report. You never can really trust the injury report, right? No, you can't. <laughs> so I come into to work the day that column ran. And Dave Smith calls me into his office. I'm going, oh, what, what, what's wrong? He says, he says, Jimmy Johnson is livid at you. He says, mm-hmm. he, he, he said, um, you didn't check with him about what the running back said, and now you're making him look like a liar. And I said, well, I, I just quoted what the, what the guy said. He's on the list, so I assume, you know, he's hurt. Mm-hmm. He said, well, he's, he's really mad. You should go talk to him. I said, okay. So I get in my car and I drive out to um, Valley Ranch and, uh, you know, it was the day of coaches availability. And so um, after the after the availability, I just went up to the gym and I said, I, I heard I heard you're mad and you want to talk to me. He said, yeah. He says, come here. So we walk down the hallway away from the where they do the little press availability thing to the front door of his office. And he turns around and he's like nose to nose with with me, and he is he's cussing me out. So you made me <laughs> made me look like a liar. And so he gets done venting, and so I said, "So this means I can't cover the team anymore?" And he goes, he "Goes no." And I go, "All right, we're good." <laughs> and, and, that, and that was it. Um, but, you know, that was one of the things that Galloway always taught me. He said, you know, if, you, if you're going to criticize someone, and even, and like I said, I looked at this as a, as a tongue-in-cheek column, right? Um, right, right. You got you to gotta be available. You got to make them, and so that's, that's what I did. Yeah, and face it, the music, Yeah, right? just the music. Yeah. And in fact, I remember- Show the, up. They show up. That's exactly right. And I remember going out there that day and waiting for the-, the I was in the locker room waiting for the the coach's availability, and Michael Irvin came over and he was like, he was like, man, that was some funny, that was some funny shit you wrote about it. <laughs> he said that was hilarious, man. He was he was rolling. Some other people said the same thing, but Jimmy didn't find it funny at all. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Um, yeah, tell me. I mean, so you you traveled the world. You you bring this perspective and this knowledge and the background. 
And then you end up traveling the world, the Olympics, uh, Wimbledon, Tour de France, British Open. That, that is an experience, too. What was it like to go around the world and write about sports? Not necessarily seeing the rest of the world, but just seeing how the rest of the world kind of celebrates sports. Do you have a, I'm trying to remember. Do you have a moment that stands out? Oh, yeah. Um, when when the, um, the Sydney games, in fact, I'm drinking out of a Sydney mug right here. Um, <laughs> when the Sydney games happened, one of the things that I asked if I could do before I switched over to the sports department was cover the Olympics. I said, Dave, can I cover the Olympics? He said, absolutely. I said, good, we got a deal. So when I saw the Sydney games on the uh, calendar, I was like, I got to go. And the reason I wanted to go was because I wanted to meet Peter Norman. Mm. Peter Norman. Great athlete. He, he, yeah, yeah the, uh, the He's the silver third medalist person, the silver medalist in the 200. That's right, the third person with Carlos and, and, and Smith. And so I, you know, I get to, uh, I get to Sydney, and you know, before I got there, I was trying to find out where, where he was. I, I located him. I got the message to him, and we met one day at the, um, at the track facility. And I interviewed him that afternoon. And that was, you know, that was incredible. Uh, I, I remember mean, that's a great, that, that's a big moment in, in, in sports and huge. politics and culture. All came I mean, together. I mean, when they protested on the, on the stand, there's Peter Norman, a yep. white Australian, standing there with them. Exactly. And he, and he suffered retribution for joining their protests um, by supporting their protests uh, when he got back to Australia. So he mm-hmm. was shunned for quite, quite some time. You know, going to the rest of the world, I mean, that, that's what always fascinated me. It wasn't so much the, the sports there, but it was like, you know, what was going on? I remember, I also remember in Sydney, um, the woman who was the, um, I think she was a 400, 800 runner for Australia, and she was... Kathy Freeman. Kathy Freeman, yes. Yeah, it's one, um, it's, it's, it's my, one of my favorite moments that I ever experienced as a sports writer. You were there, right. I yeah. was sitting right there on the track. So, so that night I decided, I said, I said, you know what? I'm not going to go to the, I'm not going to go to the track, but I want to go to a neighborhood. I want to go to an, a, a neighborhood where her people would be right. and watch right. it there. And so I, that's what I did. And I found this beer hall. Yes. For beer. Um, this beer hall in Sydney and, uh, watched it there. <laughs> And to see these these folks, not hard to find in Sydney. No, not not at all. A, thank goodness for the beer over there, man. That's a great that's a great country for for beer. Um, and uh, if you remember when we got to Sydney, there was a big protest going on in downtown Sydney around Aboriginal rights, Aboriginal, and people had right? camped out exactly. and everything. And yeah, but yeah, it's I actually same, visited. I visited one of those camps the day before Kathy ran. There you go. How I, that's kind of how I set up the race. You know, Perfect. I went and talked to people and tried to put it in that context. And I remember, uh, I remember, like again, this wasn't this wasn't a woman running one time around a track. This was something else going on. Exactly. Something exactly. bigger was going on. And that was the amazing thing. You had what a juxtaposition. You had these camps where people are fighting. People like her um, are fighting for their rights. And at the same time, she's on billboards, right, where the country is celebrating her. Right. So, yeah, so to your point, yeah, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be with those people that night and feel their sense of 
um, pride in having one of their own, a woman who grew up um, suffering the slings and arrows of a society um, that treated indigenous people um, horribly. Well, when she she won her race, I don't know if you remember, but she... Walked the track with the with flag, the flag. And, she sa- and she and took her shoot. Remember, she took her spikes off. She sat That's down. Right. Literally, she was twenty feet from me. That's incredible. And I just and I just think of that right now, and I'm getting chills. Yeah. Because it was a moment that I just it was top five moments I've ever experienced. And people always want to know about this sporting event or that sporting event. And That's I'm right. Like, no, it was this one race in Australia, and, and that's the kind of thing that I that I think uh, sports writers who've had long careers. Um, think about and even in Sydney like I think about it it doesn't have to be a great big political moment no I mean there was a time I went to to cover table tennis which I call ping pong right exactly so and I go there and there was a guy uh somebody from Japan I believe who was like the Michael Jordan of ping pong and there was like 30 reporters running around with this guy and he was so famous he had to wear a disguise in public and it just Again, open my eyes to this idea that, you know, what we see in America or what we value or what there's things around the world that that uh, we just we just don't know. And sports brings that to life, especially at the at the Olympics. Yeah, the Olympics. I mean, it's just a, it's a smorgasbord of of uh, human stories. I think it's I think it's about talking to people on an individual level and bringing them to, um, you know, how they fit into the bigger aspect of what they're involved in. Um Sometimes it's the conversations you remember, right? I think you once mentioned that the, we dehumanize it, but the individuals matter. I mean, I mean, and I think you know. Well, look what look what's going on with the social context of of sports now with with Colin Kaepernick, you know, in 2016. But he was just a he didn't start sports protests. It's been going on for a hundred years. It's always been part of the society we live in. Uh, there's no separation. And I think again, I think that's what you bring to the coverage of um, the events and the, and the movements and the, and the individuals. I mean, you, you put it in such great cultural con- context that I always feel like I learned I something it. when I read a Kevin Blackestone column. <laughs> well, I, pre- I appreciate that. It's, uh, yeah, it's a history that's kind of, it hasn't fully been told. That's why I teach, a, I teach a course in Maryland and it's called Sports Protest and Media, where I, where I try and do a few things. Number one, I try and show people, I try and show students that sports and politics have been bedfellows since sports were born. The, the marathon race was born out of a run made by a soldier to alert Athens as to what was about to happen, right? So that's, it, that was a pol- the political reason for the marathon. And, and then I just, I, I try and make them understand that not only have they been bedfellows forever, but sport is a natural platform for protests uh, for a number of different reasons that scholars have made very clear as they've studied it. And then the other thing I, I like them to know is that, you know, there have been many instances along the way where people have used sports to protest. Um, oh, yeah. And sometimes it's, yeah, and sometimes it's been people in sports, and sometimes it's been people outside of sports who have used sports to protest. Um, whether it's. Well, think about like Rose Robinson, right? 
Rose Robinson Rose, was a, a black high jumper. Sure. Nin- yeah, nineteen fifty nine, I believe. Yep. She she uh, protested against the American foreign policy at the Pan Am Games. Yep. You know, yep. and, and she, uh, she, re- she refused to stand, stand for the National, National Anthem. Anthem. She was Kaepernick that? of her time yeah. Yeah. in 1959. But, you know, I don't think people, you know, we don't we don't think past last week, right? No, exactly. <laughs> and, yeah, and her story, you know, really didn't get covered until the past, you know, the past few years. So, you know, people need to under, understand that so that we don't, you know, it's kind of like my, my, my mother used to say, you know, there's there's little that's new today, right? when you start looking back in history. And, and that's absolutely true. And when you have protests in sports, it, it has a great impact because sports are transcendent. And even people who don't pay attention to sports will pay attention to sports when something happens in sports that is transcendent. Right, right. So you've done this for 40 years and you're still doing it at a high level. <laughs> I'm not making you retire, but, right. but what, what's next? What do you want to do next uh, in your career? I mean, you, you've done a little bit of everything. You've, you've covered everything. You're, you know, again, you, you're at the Washington Post. Uh, you're, you're on ESPN. You, you've worked various places. You've done NPR, PBS, documentaries. You teach, you know. Um. And so, you know, I'm working with, I've been working on a film project the last five years now and uh, slowly making progress toward, towards the end. Um, and I love documentary film. So um, It's about Native American mascots, right? It's about Native American mascot. I've been working on it since started the, I started it in 2014 with a friend of mine. And uh, yeah, it's called uh, um, Imagining the Indian. Racism started with what happened to indigenous people. That, that is the seed on this continent. Um, and so in order to eradicate it, racism, we have to understand what happened to these people and how we were, and in this particular instance, how sport and commercialism um, was an integral part in that, played an incredible role in that. Um, and so it was very interesting just to watch how the protests in the wake of George Floyd's murder caught up to this idea, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it swept Confederate imagery and Confederate monuments um, out of and our the teams out of changing our their names, yeah. Right. And somehow teams changing their names. The yeah. Washington football team, the Cleveland baseball team, Atlanta, Europe next, Chicago, <laughs> Europe next, you're Golden State, you're up next. Right. So um, uh, it, it's 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 really been fascinating to see this thing um, this thing come around. So yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to finish that and. I think you. I think this moment all speaks to the work that you've done in your career, um, you and other great journalists. And uh, I think, if anything, it's made us realize, you know, sports writing is not the toy department. Oh, you yeah. know, not at all. You know, I mean, it's fun and games, and you know, there's been a lot of great things, times and jokes and laughs. But you know, w- sports exist, and in and in sports exist in the world. Absolutely. It's not just a game. No. And uh, and you shed a light on that for years and years. And I think our business is better off for it. 
And I know personally, I'm I'm better off for having met you. I'm, my only regret is I we haven't we didn't talk more often during my career. We would yeah, chit chat at an event, and I think like, yeah. oh man, that guy, I, I should get to know him better. So it's very fortunate to have you on on this episode. Thanks, Todd. We've Appreciate some, it. You're the you're the only person I know who covered Nelson Mandela and saw Mike Tyson bite a chunk of <laughs> ear off, off of a Hollowfield's head. <laughs> that's that's quite a career. <laughs> that's that's pretty good. Pretty amazing stories right there. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Kevin. I really appreciate you joining us and uh, peace. Thanks for the invite. Thanks for listening to Pressbox Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcomed here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. Producer Sarah Wilgrube and her audio engineer Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Running should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-back training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals that you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along the planted runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you.